Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Every week, we talk about the insanity going on in American politics, break down a few stories, and try and make sense of things. And I'm Charlie Warzel, a senior tech writer here at BuzzFeed. Charlie, what are we going to talk about this week? So today we're going to talk about how Donald Trump uh, just uh, pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord and what that means for the planet and geopolitics. Uh, We're going to talk about why nobody wants to work in the White House right now. And lastly, uh, we're going to talk about a dumb thing that Donald Trump tweeted the other night. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, but begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, who covers science policy in Washington, D.C. for BuzzFeed News. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm good. Good to be here. A bit of a crazy afternoon. President Trump uh, just recently announced in the Rose Garden that he is going to drop out. He's going to have the U.S. drop out of the Paris Climate Accord today. You follow this stuff very, very closely. I don't. How big of a deal is it for the U.S. to exit the accord? It depends on how you look at it. Uh, Sort of from an environmental aspect, it's not a big deal. Uh, He's already taken steps that essentially uh, nixed the uh, things we were going to do for the climate uh, by killing Obama's clean power plan earlier uh, in March. Uh, Geopolitically, you know, it's pretty big news. It's a seven or an eight on a Mm -hmm. scale of one to ten where, you know, a ten is a declaration of war. Um, this is sure to antagonize uh, everybody across the world who cares about climate. All the countries that we uh, push to into this deal, this this accord was basically the U.S. version of a climate deal um, that we made everybody else do. And so it sort of sours uh, uh, the world's trust in the U.S. on the environmental front, um, probably for a generation. Wow. And so when it was negotiated, what were the things that Obama and the U.S. said they were going to do as part of it? The unique part of this deal uh, was that it it was bottoms up. Every country had to make its own uh, contributions uh, and say what they were. It wasn't going to be a top-down thing where everybody was sort of fitted into a thing and there was a gun put to your head Mm -hmm. on how many cuts you were going to make. And so that sort of gave everybody flexibility on how they were going to make uh, their cuts. And that was seen as a U.S. push. Other countries wanted, you know, hard things, the Europeans. So this was was our deal. And we promised we would cut our emissions uh, compared to 2005 by about 26 to 28 percent by the year 2030. And we also promised we would throw money into this green, green climate fund uh, that Trump was exercised about today in his talk which was really a way to set up uh, financial infrastructure for investments in clean energy across the world to basically get the Indians and other nations to uh, build solar plants instead of coal plants. So it was a way to create an economy for clean energy worldwide. And so uh, we've kind of taken ourselves out of being part of that and left the door open to the Europeans and the Chinese and everybody else with this. So this was kind of, I I just watched um, a a kind of a, a long 
meandering uh, speech by Trump, and it seemed like he hit a, a couple of points again and again. But you know, you see sort of the the immediate reaction uh, from both sides on Twitter is, is pretty is pretty frantic. Were, was there something or anything that stood out in 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 Trump's speech about this that surprised you greatly to caught you off guard or was it pretty, you know, standard what you had expected? Uh, these are a lot of the talking points you heard from uh, Heritage and other places that have been influencing Trump from the beginning of his, his uh, administration. Um, you know, Trump makes the financial argument. I'm a negotiator. This is a big deal or a bad deal. Rather, I'm going to fix it. So, I mean, this is standard Trump campaign stuff. Um, he didn't say, maybe it's surprising to some people, like climate change is a Chinese hoax and so forth. He's not questioning the science. He's questioning the economics. So the argument has shifted from what it was 10 years ago where you had people saying, no, 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 boo, boo, it doesn't exist. To, now it's an economic one. This is bad for the U.S. and its, its workers. So in some ways, that's, a, that's a, <laughs> an evolution or a step forward, you might argue. Um, and that might be surprising. Other than that, um, no, this is basically what we were hearing the last couple of days he was going to do. Everybody's expecting Not just the last back. couple of days. I mean, this was like a this was a central part of his campaign. Probably. I don't know anyone who's surprised really shouldn't be and really didn't listen to anything he said on the trail. I mean, this was this was something he said he was going to do and he is doing it. Very much so. Yeah, he made this speech uh, in coal states. Uh, this mm-hmm. was almost part of the stump speech, I think. Uh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kate, but he, he's made noises like this for at least a year. Right. In terms of like the rest of the world, who who else is not in the agreement? It's us and who else now? Uh, it's Nicaragua and Syria. And people pointed out that's not fair to the Nicaraguans because they're not in it because they didn't think the agreement was strong enough. They're big, clean power guys. The Syrians <laughs> aren't in it because they don't have a country. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and they're pariah states. So, wow. Yeah. What um how like could, do you know anything at this point about how like what does it mean to actually with withdraw? So there's he said he would comply with the process of the agreement, which is a three year thing uh, to just get to the point where you are formally withdrawing, and then it takes another year uh, to have withdrawn. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a little bit like a Brexit kind of dealy, and the formal withdrawal will be one or two days after uh, the next presidential election. So potentially, it could be another a new president uh, elect uh, having this land on their doorstep uh, right at that point. Having this land on their doorstep, or potentially again having this be something that someone would campaign on, right? That Trump could campaign like I kept my promise and I stayed out of it, and look how great it's working out. Or an opponent saying, "I'll get us back in there, and I'll you know reestablish our, ourselves right. in the world." Or it could be, although, to be honest, voters don't really put climate number one in terms of how they vote anyways. So, yeah, it's you know. not it's not like a an issue that most voters put at the top. Right. It, exerc- it exercised his base as a bad foreign agreement. You know, foreigners bad, mm-hmm. agreements with foreigners bad. It's not so much clear to me. Climate is uh, a sort of a litmus test for Republican when you say... Do you believe climate change is bad and people are doing it? You're really asking them, are you a Republican? Right. And so uh, it's not, you know, it's politically probably it was good for his base for him to do this for everybody else. Maybe not so much. This is, might be a little out of out of turn and, and maybe very obvious. But I think one thing that I'm a little bit curious about or, or to have you elaborate on is is the United States's position 
internationally sort of like its reputation with regard to this there was obviously the 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 obama administration you know made a lot of of moves in this direction is this something that historically we waver on with administrations or have we is this kind of like a complete departure from a long sort of policy of progress this is a total repeat of the past in some sense 16 Mm. years ago uh bush reneged on his promise to uh, do something about the kyoto he pulled out of kyoto which was a more stringent deal um so the europeans have seen this again at the time they you know put their hands on their shoulders and said we will continue uh they're doing the same thing now and just doing with the chinese uh beside them time will tell you know how badly it affects us geopolitically but you got to think uh, and what I'm hearing from the people I talk to is the cabinet rooms in Europe, they're like, geez, we're not going to trust with these guys. Why would they have any incentive whatsoever to renegotiate with Trump? Yeah. Uh, you know, at this point, they all think he'll be gone in four years anyways. They're just going to like laugh at him when he, if he actually makes any moves about renegotiating this. He can't. The deal's done. Right. Well, so so he, so his talking point that I can go in and, and get a fairer, better deal for us is perhaps not. No, it's crazy. The The Europeans see themselves as giving in to the U.S. already to get the deal we had with the non-binding, you know, rules of it. The only rules were that you had to agree to come clean about, you know, your emission cuts. And so they saw themselves as giving in. And now he wants even more. They're going to say, that's crazy. They have contributed money. They've pledged uh, $4.6 billion U.S. dollars towards this green fund that, that Trump said they haven't given any money to. People in Sweden have given already alone have given significant amounts of money so they see that as just kind of they will see that as kind of whining i suspect from his talking points from a business perspective he talked about coal he talked Mm -hmm. about american energy he talked about american jobs like would the paris accord have had have had those effects or is it uh, on, on the economy or is that something that we just don't know and we'll never know because now we're not in it anymore. <laughs> well, uh, it's widely disputed. Like he's relying essentially on the coal industry's think tanks analyses. Uh, they're not happy about uh, the deal because, you know, coal does suffer if you decarbonize the indus- uh, the economy. And, um, you know, the, the NERA uh, analysis he pointed to has been widely criticized for making totally unrealistic assumptions about how you decarbonize to make it as painful as possible. Um, you know, there was a discussion about cost of $2.6 trillion uh, over, you know, 30 years. That's in a world economy that will have grown $480 trillion by that time. You know, 2.6 is not a lot of money, you know. Um, and so it's hard to believe any of these analyses. In the meantime, there have been peer-reviewed studies that show benefits to the clean power plan. Uh, that Obama had envisioned as meeting these commitments, you know, just in health cost alone, not even counting the environmental benefits, and it would save thousands of lives. In but the, the 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 Obama when when Obama did go in and negotiate this, it wasn't it was not without controversy. Oh yeah, though. I mean, this was very like getting this done was a very big deal for the Obama administration, yep. and at the end of the administration when they're sending, you know, John Kerry out there to finish it up. I mean, this this took them a long time and a lot of political capital capital and effort. So it's not like this happened and everyone was super 
jazzed about it. No, like I said, the Europeans were displeased. This deal is one we had to make essentially to bring the Indians in. You know, it was a lot of arm twisting from John Kerry to get the Chinese to agree to this. All the Chinese, the air is so bad, they find their leadership finally realized, oh my God, we got to do something or we're going to be overthrown by choking mm-hmm. people. But really getting India to play along where India is the developing country that's going to be having lots of emissions, uh, but it wants to electrify for God's sakes. You know, they have 100 million people who don't have electricity or more, much more probably. Um, so to get them to be part of this was like part of the deal we had to make. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's the the middle of crazy breaking news moment. So um, we'll catch up with you again soon. You bet. Joining us now is Tarini Party, who covers the Trump administration in Capitol Hill for BuzzFeed News. What's up, Tarini? Hey, Kate. Hey, Hi. Charlie. Hi. So um, earlier this week, uh, Michael Dubke, who is the White House communications director, who you've probably never heard of, <laughs> resigned, <laughs> resigned from his position uh, after only three short months. Um, I believe the only time we'd really ever even heard his name were when he was hired and when he maybe got fired, maybe resigned. And Trini, you and a couple of our colleagues did some work to see who would maybe replace Mr. Dubke. Does anyone anyone want this job? Well, the short answer for that is hell no, as we heard from (laughs) a lot of uh, the top uh, Republican communications type operatives who would be considered for that job. And some of them actually have been approached for similar jobs in the past and uh, for a variety of reasons have said no. Uh, The biggest one being Donald Trump and his um, unpredictable nature and just the ability or the lack thereof to control any type of message coming out of the White House. I mean, this is a kind of job that people work their entire careers for, to be the communications director in the White House. And you guys spoke collectively to around 20 people who maybe would be in a position to take a job like this. And the answer was pretty resounding. And I'm wondering if you could give us some highlights from your article. Sure. So we do come across a lot of people who have been working towards such a job, especially because uh, during, obviously, the Obama presidency, they couldn't work in the White House because they're Republicans. But now that the opportunity has come, uh, we're just going to read out uh, some of these quotes from our story. One Republican texted me saying, quote, that's like asking someone who just witnessed a horrific bungee jumping accident whether they would like to go next. (laughs) (laughs) This is some masterful trolling (laughs) via text message. And then there was, in general, a lot of laughing. Uh, One source told a colleague of ours, sorry, I'm sorry, uh, while he was laughing. And then tried to be serious and asked, oh, you're being serious? Oh, my God, I'm crying of laughter. Why would anyone in their right mind want to be his communications director? So not an overall positive feeling. Definitely not positive. (laughs) Like, what does a communications director at the White House actually do? They have Sean Spicer, who is the press secretary, who goes out on TV every day. And I think a lot of people sort of think that that is 
what a communications director does, but it's a bigger job than that. Right? It is. And in the past, it's sort of been uh, the person who really does decide the day-to-day message, the overall sort of vision for how to communicate with the voters who elected them, with the American people. And in the past, the the press secretary has sort of reported in a way to the communications director. Um, this time around, the sort of hierarchy was more unclear, which is probably one of the reasons why Dubki ended up leaving, just because it's unclear what his job exactly was since no one really had heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, so the job is essentially to craft a message that then the press secretary during the the briefings, uh, you know, goes out and talks about and that sort of is supposed to spread. Um, However, when the president just entirely changes that message with a tweet or with a TV interview or or something along those lines, um, then you have to go back uh, to the board and come up with a new message. And um, that was happening so much that there was just no sort of consistency left anymore. Well, that's that's sort of my my question is, I mean, in a normal administration, you, you'd think like not, maybe not being able to fill this job or not having anyone to do this job is a problem. But is it here? I mean, it seems like you have a, a president who just takes to Twitter to talk to the people and the people who voted for him love that about him. How important is is this to as a job now? We heard during the campaign, and we're hearing this some more now, that the president is his best spokesman. Um, And, you know, when he's trying to talk to his core base, that definitely does seem to be the case. Um, But now that we look at, at, uh, you know, this job, which is very intense given the the Russia investigations and just the daily crisis uh, going on, it's unclear if he is capable of still being his own best spokesman, given that his lawyers are telling him not to do certain things and not especially not to tweet, uh, you know, really at all, but really not about uh, some of the things that could get him in trouble. And he just uh, seems to still do whatever he wants. Uh, So I think that, you know, there is this idea that he speaks for himself and he's uh, he's the best at that. Um, But that might also be at this point uh, something that staff are saying because they don't want to continue to be blamed for anything <laughs> yeah. that gets wrong. I mean, wrong. They were, they're, they're always getting in trouble because they're going out on TV say, defending one message like there's clearly a plan in place and here is our talking point and here's what we're going to say. But that's uh, impossible to keep up when your boss contradicts you uh, a day or maybe even hours mm-hmm. later on Twitter yep. in a television interview. Like you can only do the job as well as your boss stays on message, right? And we're even seeing now that the some of the statements coming out of the White House responding to some of the negative or not negative, but you know, uh, stories that aren't really going to be good for them. They're they're no one's putting their name on them. Uh, no one from the, the <laughs> press office is uh, willing to attach their names with these statements because they're unsure at this point whether Trump is just going to, um, you know, reverse course and say something else the next day, which makes them look totally not credible. Right. Right. One thing that one thing that I find really interesting about this, and and I actually uh, I asked Mike Cernovich for uh, for this piece. If what uh, if, Mike comes you know, up if, every week in yeah, our I know. podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm well aware. <laughs> um, uh, 
I I asked if you know if if some if he or you know some of like the the pro Trump media people would would take this this job and you know, these people are like the sort of the biggest most enthusiastic backers and 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 even they seemed like they wanted to be distanced which to me kind of speaks to as an outsider uh, what I see is an interesting point and that's that there's kind of this great with Trump distance that is useful for all these people, even those who are the opportunists and are sort of making their name off of him. He's kind of this guy who you can, it's kind of best if you have like a, either a geographical or physical distance from, from Trump and it can be his, like, uh, you know, his, his backer without actually having to sort of interact with him. It's fascinating. Yeah. For someone like Laura Ingram, who Cernovich mentioned as uh, potentially one of the people who could take the communications director job, someone like her or even Corey Lewandowski, Trump's former (laughs) campaign manager, or Dave Edbasi, another person who who was high up in the campaign. Uh, Even for them, I mean, it's been very uh, good for their careers in the past month to be this close to the president and to be spotted, you know, going in and out of the White House. But when it comes to actually taking a job within the White House, it's unclear if they would even want to do that. I mean, you know, I think Bossy is already citing, you know, concerns from family, but, you know, there's a lot to think about. You're going to be working nonstop every day of the week. Right. Uh, you're not really going to see your family much. You're probably going to have to take a pay cut. So those are, you know, some of the other factors that are involved in this. Whereas if you're on the outside, you can just kind of make money off of your closeness to Trump and then also advise him. And he does seem to value the outside advisors in a way more so than the people inside the White House. You know, we know he calls uh, Corey Lewandowski. You know, he, called Rod- he calls Roger Stone, people Chris like Reddy. that. Uh, Chris yeah. Reddy, exactly, to get their uh, views on things and including whether or not he should fire some of his top aides. <laughs> so it's, it's in, in some ways, it's better to be in that position. If it's this hard now, what, like five months in or so, like what is it going to be like in a year or two years, <laughs> however yeah. long? I mean, it just seems like you're, you're, go- you're running through your bench kind of quickly. And yeah. I, I don't That's yeah. really the question. I, I mean, at the end of the Obama administration, a lot of the press staff was sort of the younger staff that had worked their way up over the course of being there for eight years. And if you're already in a place where like you're kind of working with the B team, and the C team doesn't want to join or the A team definitely doesn't want to join and you're five months in, you know, who knows what a communications office is really going to look like. Yeah, I think if what, if they continue to struggle with staff, we, we're going to see and this that Trump is just going to go out and do the rallies and just not really give, you know, not really care about his uh, communication staff. Another thing that we've sort of, sort of started exploring is um, him potentially bringing in people from the Trump organization, uh, people who are loyal to him, people who he knows to do different jobs, whether it's, you know, part time or full time. Um, and, you know, already he has Hope Hicks. He has Dan Scavino. Um, he has Keith Schiller, who he's known for many years. So that might be one option for him to go. I mean, this is sort of, you know, C team, D team, whatever you want to call it, people who don't really have experience in the government world, but know Trump and are loyal to him. And that's what he values at the end of the day. All right, Tarini Party, thank you very much for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. Speaking of the president's Twitter message... (laughs) 
Earlier this week, Donald Trump, at real Donald Trump, tweeted out, despite the constant negative press covfefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E, and then ended it. There's nothing else. Um, That tweet stayed up from about midnight to about 10 of 6 in the morning, um, leaving all of Twitter and perhaps the world wondering what he meant. I mean, we know what he meant. He was trying to spell out press coverage. Yeah, this is uh, not a this is not a huge secret. Like it's actually you can you can very easily see how he that, how he botched that. Not not a mystery, but just it was dangled out there for a while and became became a huge meme and the subject of much debate as to how one pronounces Kovfefe. Kovfefe? What so do you think it is, Charlie? Uh, okay. Um uh I I like <sighs> It's like it's so painful to talk about this uh, and to say it out loud. It makes me l- truly cringe. But uh, I am—I believe it's Kofefe. I also believe it's Kofefe. But a lot of people I've seen recently been trying to add an end to it, like Konfefe, which well, that's, um, that's there's, just, there's that's no just wrong. Yeah, that's just wrong. Uh, it makes it makes you cringe. It makes our uh, editor Catherine Miller cringe. She she doesn't really want to uh, talk about this very much, but I think it's hilarious. Well, sometimes you got to discuss difficult topics. So (laughs) it continued to be hilarious for about 24 hours. Uh, I mean, it was such a subject of intense debate the night it went out that like someone had to ask about it the next day. And so Sean Spicer, the press secretary even tried to defend it at Wednesday's briefing. Why did it stay up so long? Is is no one watching this? No, I I think the, the, uh, the president and a small group of people know exactly what he meant. We're so we're truly living in the dumbest timeline. <laughs> it's truly it's like really, you, you it's pretty remarkable. You can't you could if you wrote it, no one would believe you. Um, no, to say I, like a, a small group knows exactly what he meant. Like it, what? It's it's just like just admit it. We all everyone everyone makes mistakes. Autocorrect is hard. Uh, phones are small. It's late at night, whatever. Um, and then even Hillary Clinton tweeted about it, and that's how you knew that the meme had died. I think we time of death was whenever she she tweeted it. To to um, be fair, to be fair, this is the life cycle of this one was long. Like Trump to Trump's weird credit, if that's what you want to call it, I don't know. It it had some serious staying power for for a while, and I think it yeah. was. I think the one thing that is lost now that we're a couple of days out from this is that it was delightful for a short amount of time, and then I got a I got a PR email yesterday from someone <laughs> that said, uh, "Do you want to speak to an expert in Kofefe?" Um, which is just like it's it's truth to just like the the, the dystopia that we live in. Um, but I will say one thing that the the Spicer spin of you know small group of people know what he says. The weird people that I monitor on the pro Trump pro Trump internet are desperate to know what that is because they are taking that at face value. And uh, I saw a thread on uh, the Reddit uh, Donald Trump Reddit uh, called the Donald, where people are thinking of getting uh, tattoos. Kofefe oh, no. tattoos, oh, um, no. and they are trying to see if it's a way to unlock maybe like a special code of some kind, and then people on the far far left fringe who are just like you know 
out of like out of control essentially are thinking that maybe it is like like they're like translating it into Cyrillic and like trying to connect it to this awful like Trump Russia narrative and it's just like it's just we can't nothing gold can stay yeah everything is shit <laughs> Kofefe was too pure for this world right. um what but it does it does raise I think it actually does raise an interesting question. The fact that this tweet was up for almost six hours. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was a calculated decision to leave it up. Maybe Donald Trump was delighted by the reaction that he was getting. But what, like, it leaves this open question of, like, does anyone else have a password to his Twitter feed? Can someone go in there and delete something? What if he actually tweets something he really shouldn't? Like, yeah. I think that there are people who have access to, I mean, there are the sort of the classic really, you know, uh, uh, boring Trump tweets that are just sort of like slightly policy based or, you know, are just like, hey, it's flag day. Congratulations to, you know, America, like love Donald. Like those, those tweets are, I don't think written by him. I think someone has access, but there's kind of this weird question that's like, He's the leader of the free world. Like, can you delete the leader of the free world's tweet without his? Yeah. Like, you know, say he went to bed. Can you do that? But I think I think what you're alluding to is 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 probably the, the meteor point, which is like, was there a protocol to wake him up? What is the you know like? Will people just let things happen? It, it's really it's strange to think about. Yeah, I mean, if this is not unprecedented either, I mean, Sean Spicer tweeted out the password to his Twitter account. <laughs> right. Like right. early on, <laughs> it, uh, the password to the press sec Twitter account early on in this LeVay accident. So if Donald Trump's like trying to log into something, like I have read reports that the only thing on his phone is the Twitter app, which yeah. seems crazy to me, maybe like to prevent a scenario like this. But we are in unprecedented territory. Like the previous administration kind of thought about some of these issues. There was all of this stuff, like, can he be on Twitter? Can he have a BlackBerry? Can he have an iPhone? Uh, for for lots of security-related reasons. And, like, this is why. No, I it's guess. true. And, and there's so much... Um, there was so much said, especially, like, very early on, like, in the first couple weeks of the administration, yeah, with Trump, the security of Trump's f- of phone and the security of his Twitter account. And, like, oh, my God. Like if for some reason someone turned on like two-factor password authentication and he accidentally copied and pasted his his password or code and somebody got like a hold of it and sent out a you know a couple of crazy somebody, somebody got a I hold mean, of it like it's like he sends it out to like millions of people who follow r- him on Twitter. right no exactly I mean it's just like there is a, there is this this really weird nightmare scenario where an international incident happens because you know of a typo or a copy paste error and again truly the dumbest timeline (laughs) (laughs) i woke up at five o'clock in the morning having fallen asleep uh pretty early the the night of kofefe and um god had several emails in my inbox about it and was like what the fuck is everyone talking about like I Did you think it was like a no world idea. leader? Did you think it was <laughs> like some I don't, I you know, strange even, I mean, cleric th- or something passed away? Or what, <laughs> what did you think it was? I had no idea. It took me a solid like 10 minutes. I looked at the tweet and then I saw what happened. 
And um, I was very, I actually, I woke my husband up because I had to show him because I just like couldn't quite believe all of it. Anyway, Kofefe will live on in our hearts and on the internet. Or we'll forget about it in the next two days and never <laughs> in the remember next two it days. And we'll be like, that happened five years ago. Yeah, right. right that happened last week. Shut up. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go get my tattoo, so uh, I, have to, I have to leave anyway. So this has been fun. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer and Eleanor Kagan. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Agaranesha Chagre and Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. 